This is episode number 399 with Mark Laurie of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is an absolute mogul. He sold his first company, diapers.com, to Amazon for $540 million. Then he sold jet.com to Walmart for $3.3 billion and most recently bought an NBA team. Today, he's working to disrupt the food industry and is even building a city of the future. Please welcome to the podcast, Mark Laurie. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Yeah, you know, it started, I mean, when I was very young, I, I think I was just born with the, the entrepreneur's DNA because my grandma used to ask me what I want to be when I, when I grow up. And I used to say a farmer. This is like four years old, six years old, eight years old. And she said, no, 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 doctor or lawyer? <laughs> they're like, no, I want to be a farmer because they grow stuff from nothing. I literally was born wanting to grow stuff from nothing. And, uh, you know, no one in my family had ever gone to school, uh, you know, college. And, you know, no one ever made, made any real money or anything. So she wanted me a, to be a professional and be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was like, nope, farmer. And I did every entrepreneurial business a kid could do everything from recycling newspapers, baseball cards, lemonade stands, car washes, like everything. But when I uh, graduated high school, I'm sorry, when I graduated college, there really wasn't this thing that you go and become an entrepreneur. I didn't have any money. There was no startups really at the time. So I went to work in banking and, um, but I was working in banking like seven years and now it's the late nineties and now startups are really taking off and they're really a thing. And I just felt this, this pull, this tug uh, from sort of the startup tech world to say, you, you have to get out of banking. You have to go, you have to go take a risk here and be an entrepreneur. And I had just had a newborn baby. Um, I was doing really well in my career. Um, but one day I just woke up and said, no, I'm, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And I went in my boss's office and, 
said, I'm quitting. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start a company. And he laughed at me and said, do you, didn't you just have a baby? Do you know what I'm paying you? And I said, yeah. yeah. He's like, you must have a damn good idea. And you must, you know, I'm like, well, I don't have an idea yet, but I will. And he's like, you're crazy. And I said, I don't know, maybe, but I got to do this. And he said, all right, well, um, can I be your first investor and give you 50 grand? And I'm like, yeah, and that kicked it off. That was the start of my, you know, being a, becoming a serial entrepreneur. That was back in, uh, I guess that was back in 99. Yeah, wow. So um, we're going to delve into that, but I'm curious, kind of like looking back at those early days, what was your favorite hustle? Yeah, I mean, oh, oh man, and all those businesses when I was, when I was younger, um, you know, we, we used to buy, big cases of, of, of baseball cards direct from the manufacturer. And then we used to put them in, in full sets, uh, put them in order all summer, me and my friend Lax, and just, and then take them to a trade show and sell them uh, for a nice gain. And, and at that point, you know, we we're in high school and we thought it was like incredible that we can, you know, we would make about maybe 10 or $15 on each set. And we was like, this is incredible. Every set we put together, we make ten or fifteen dollars. If we do a hundred, that's fifteen hundred dollars. If we do a thousand, that's fifty. You know, it's just so incredible as a kid to like control your own destiny and be able to to sort of uh, make as much money as you wanted, as long as you were willing to put the work in. And we did. We literally day, the morning till night, put these sets together. The entire basement was just, you know, ordering of sets. That was the first like. A real, uh, you know, make, make a buck sort of thing as a kid. Mm. So, you had like clearly the right DNA that that hunger, but like, what really took things to the next level? I mean, I kind of tell people this all the time. It, it is a combination of, you know, being able to take risk and comfortable failing. And I, I felt a lot as a kid. My parents were sort of a little bit not really. They didn't really parent me very much. So I, I failed. I made a lot of mistakes and you learn. I was very comfortable with failure. So I was comfortable taking risk. I think that is a prerequisite. You need, you need to take risk and be comfortable with a 80% chance of failure or that sort of thing. So it's a combination of being able to take risk and also willing to put in as much time as necessary to, to you know, achieve your goals. So incredible work ethic combined with risk-taking is sort of that's for starters. I think that you need that. And then it's sort of, um, you have to also be able to tell a story and sell. You're always selling. You're selling to raise money. You're selling to, to hire and uh, the very best people. Um, and that's a, that's a skill that's certainly uh, most really good entrepreneurs possess. And then you have to be able to think big and have vision um, and, and really, um, you know, Go for, go for, yeah, go for really big ideas and a big vision. I think th those are probably the, the, the pieces that all came together for me. So let's jump into diapers.com. Uh, what did the early days look like? And what was the idea in the beginning? Okay, so, so the idea was, you know, diapers were a lost leader for the Walmarts and Targets of the world. It would drive parents into the store to buy diapers and then hopefully they buy everything else. Online, it was even a bigger loss leader because you had to pay for shipping. They were bulky. They were expensive to ship. And no one to date had sold diapers online because they lost too much money. 
but we sort of had this thesis that, well, they're a loss leader for a reason. And if it works for the store, we could afford to lose more money online because we have a lot more products to sell. And so we took sort of a page out of the, out of the Walmart and Target playbook, which is we'll use this to build a relationship um, and then we'll sell them everything else. And it, and it, and it worked, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. The way it started was um, us not being able to buy diapers direct from Procter & Gamble and Kimberly Clark, the two big diaper manufacturers. So where do we get our diapers? We had to go to Costco and BJ's, buy the diapers, bring them back to our house, and then ship them out. And of course, we uh, bought the diapers for more money than we were selling them. So, and we were self-funding it. So it was kind of a, talk about taking risk. It's like, okay, let me just understand what you're doing here. So you, you sell a box of diapers uh, for a dollar, you know, and then you, and then you go and buy it for a dollar twenty, And we're like, uh, yeah, well, actually it's dollar thirty, but yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what we do. You know, it was sort of like, it seemed crazy and it was, it was a lot of risk and this is our own capital, but we, we had and stuck to the thesis that no, we will eventually be able to buy the diapers direct. Um, we will lose money on diapers always, but we're going to start selling other stuff that makes a lot of profit and it's all going to work in the end. You sort of have to have incredible conviction and you have to really believe in the vision and stick to it. A lot of times I see people, they have this thesis, this vision, and then they compromise it because it's too scary or risky. You know, so instead of selling the diapers for for a dollar and buy them for a dollar thirty, you say, well, let me sell the diapers for a dollar forty, we'll buy it for a dollar thirty. But now nobody wants to buy them. And now you're in this like weird place where you have no value prop, you're not following your thesis. You kind of have to, you know, build the business um, and offer the customer the value proposition um, that you know you'll be able to offer when you're at scale, even if you're not at scale. And that means you're gonna lose money. And that makes people feel really uncomfortable. And, and that's, that's in many cases the differentiator between creating a successful, successful startup and one that doesn't, doesn't quite make it. Mm. And eventually that company was, was bought by Amazon and you ended up working there for two years, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, what well, biggest takeaways from, uh, you know, that period? Yeah, it's, it's really, I, I really, it was kind of interesting. The culture in Amazon was very different than what it was, you know, that we had created at diapers.com. And, and, you know, I had always thought up until that point that there was sort of a, you know, a, a right and wrong culture. And after being inside Amazon, I sort of realized there's really not a right and a wrong culture. Um, if the culture is consistent, it can be just about anything and it can work really well. It's the inconsistent culture that's a problem. And so I saw, you know, Amazon, you know, was very successful and they still are, but the culture that was very different than the one we had created, um, but also was very consistent. Um, and, and, you know, that goes with any company. You have to know who you are, what you stand for, what are your values, what type of people are going to work well in that sort of culture and system, and then hire those people and be really consistent. And that was, the, that was a big lesson I learned there. I, I didn't think that was the case up until that point. Yeah. And what was it like um, in the early days of, you know, conversations with the Amazon team and like even working with Jeff Bezos? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? You know, they were, they were tough negotiators. You know, they had, 
they had really softened us up before the before the they, they acquired us. They um, started selling diapers at thirty percent off, which is unheard of. You know, they're, they're already a loss leader, so um, it's it, it was it was it was very very challenging uh, to be up against uh, Amazon with with diapers thirty percent off. But you know what? We still grew even in the face of it, and I think it's the primary reason why they wound up paying so much for the company because. They, I don't think they could believe that we were still growing in the face of those sort of discounts. But we never were about, you know, being the lowest price. We were about incredible service, and uh, we had created quite a brand. Yeah, awesome. Um, so switching gears, uh, Jet.com. How long were you thinking about Jet.com, and before you started in 2014? You no, know, not not that long. I mean, it was like being on a rocket ship. You know, from the from the very first pitch that we gave investors when I had nothing but a pitch deck until the time we sold to Walmart for 3.3 billion was less than two years. So that included pitching, raising, building the business, launching, getting a ten, uh, 1 billion in revenue in 10 months and selling the company <laughs> all in less than two years. That was like being on a rocket ship. I can't even explain how crazy that was. I, even looking back and thinking back, like I, I don't think I could ever replicate that speed. It was, it was, it nearly killed me too, and a lot of others on the team. I'm curious, what, what, why do you say you don't? Looking back, you don't think you could replicate that? Because I mean, it was um, a, le- a speed and a level of focus and the amount of energy it took, you know, and and what it did to sort of health during that period. I mean, it was literally like full on, full out, seven days a week, you know, 100 hours a week, week after week, under the, 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 the pressure of, of having to deliver uh, to the customer and, and see the sales grow at that rate in that short period of time. Um, it, was, it, was, it was pretty crazy. Did you experience burnout? I wouldn't say burnout because, like, burnout for me is sort of like death, you know? Like, that's, like, I'm going to go until until – I can't go anymore, and and since I'm still here, no, I didn't burn out. Um, that's the way. That's that's where I draw the line. Like I was literally on an airplane flying to make a pitch. I had uh, it was my second all nighter in a row, so I had not slept slept the night before, and this was like the second all nighter, and I was on a plane, and I couldn't sleep now because you get insomnia when you don't sleep that long, and I just all of a sudden just felt so nauseous and just threw up all over the plane. I mean, literally, it was like, that was as far, I mean, that was pretty close to the end right there. That was, that was what I call sixth gear, sixth gear, you know, where, where there's no, there's no other gear. Like there's no, somebody said, all right, you got to do a little bit more. It's like, no, like just completely maxed out. Look, thank you for sharing just to kind of, give us that picture of the level of intensity, obsession, and hard work required to achieve something like that. I'm curious, just around recruiting talent and building building the team, like, like what was your philosophy there? Um, just, yeah, I'd love to hear and delve a little bit more because you must have had Yeah, I mean, a couple people. of things, when you're hiring that many people and you want to get great people quickly, um, a couple of things. One, I sort of I guess kind of invented like a compensation, a way to compensate people in a really fair way that allows you to hire people very quickly without having to negotiate. And that's a whole, I could talk for an hour about that. Um, 
having a really robust HR department, a really great chief people officer and, and, and really strong recruiters, executive recruiters, that, that's, that's really key. Um, and, and I would say also um, not you know, being able to read resumes really well, not wasting so much time having to interview every person that looks half decent, like really being more selective through the resume process so that when you, when you interview person, there's a really high probability that, that they're a good fit. Um, and then hiring best available athlete as opposed to waiting to get somebody who's like really, really sharp and has all these incredible skills, but also has all the relevant experience. You kind of takes really hard. It's like a unicorn to get both. You have to pick one. A lot of people pick experience. I pick best available athlete, meaning somebody who is, is moved up in, in wherever they've worked. They've done really well. They're smart, analytical. They have all the values. That, that I look for uh, in people I hire, like passion and optimism and adaptability, kindness and empathy, um, and going for those people and putting them in a position where maybe they've never done it before. Um, because I've found when you do that, and they're really a star, six to 12 months later, they become one of the, the sort of most sought after people in their field. So those are just some, some little, I guess, shortcuts to, to sort of growing fast. I have to ask, like this compensation model, I, I know you said you could talk about it for now. Could you just give us a very top level? What, what it, like, yeah. Yeah, top level. Like, so everybody in the company at the same level makes the same amount of money. And so you say, okay, directors are 100,000, senior directors 150, VPs 200, senior VPs 300, EVPs 400. You know, like everybody at the same level makes the same amount across the organization. And then the, the stock options, everybody gets stock options. But a lot of times, you know, as time goes on and the value of the company increases, you want to have a system of knowing exactly how much stock you should give people in the future. And you want to keep it relative to people in the past. You want to keep it relative to, to level. And so using like a Black-Scholes formula, calculating the value of an option, and then each month, each quarter, estimating the share price, plugging into Black-Scholes and popping out a value for the option so that every person that comes into the organization at any point in time will get the same dollar value of the stock. The same cash and the same dollar value, even though it might be a different number of options, to try to keep it really fair and consistent. And it's just like a framework and a system, and it now enables you to hire people fast because when you, when you bring somebody in and you say, yeah, I wanna hire this person, you say, wait, is there a peer group director or a senior director? Everyone says, yeah, senior director, great. We already know the comp, we know the options, we know the cash, and we tell them everybody's making the same amount. You're in, you're out. And very, very uh, few times has people like been out on comp because they know their peer groups were paying fairly. They know this is their peer group. Everybody's making the same amount. And um, yeah, it just enables you to scale really fast. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, so you eventually sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion, which you said. Um, how did that come about? You became the Walmart e-commerce CEO. Um, yeah, how did all that start? How did it start? I mean, it started really with just a discussion with the CEO, Doug McMillan. And we got together and we're just sort of brainstorming together and just realized we both shared the same vision uh, for e-commerce. And they had you know, the brick and mortar capital, we had tech expertise, e-commerce know-how. And the more we were talking, the more we're like, wait, we have the same vision. 
I don't need to do it myself. You don't need to do it yourself. Let's do it together. Um, and Doug's like, yeah, we want to do that. And we want to give you the keys and your team and really help, help ignite this Walmart e-commerce business. And so, yeah, so we did it. And it, it felt so much better than when we sold to Amazon. It felt, you know, like we, had, we, had, we weren't giving up on our vision. Um, we just had a higher probability um, of getting there and felt like we can get there even faster. Whereas when we sold to Amazon, it was a little different because Amazon kind of wanted to squash us. It wasn't like, here are the keys, help us. It was sort of like, just sit in the corner and be quiet, you know? So it was a little bit, little bit different. Yeah, I see. And look, when you look at the e-commerce landscape today, like what are the, some of the biggest challenges that you foresee in the coming years? Biggest challenges? I would say not necessarily a challenge, but you got to stay ahead of the curve and, and skate to where the puck's, puck's going to be. And I think we're moving, I think in the future, conversational commerce is going to be um, how people purchase retail goods. When I say conversational, I mean using voice or text to sort of communicate um, uh, and, and be able to buy stuff much more efficiently than you can today. You know, um, sort of using AI and machine learning, you know, where, where it's personalized in a way that, you know, the system knows you as well as your your best friend or parent does. Um, and you can just literally converse. I'm looking to buy a toaster. And, oh, yeah, where, where is it? What are you looking for? Do you want it to do this? Do that. I want it to do this, that. Boom, boom, boom. And then here's a recommendation. You just, you just say yes or number one or whatever. You know, if there's multiple options and, and then it, it gets delivered to you. I think that's the future. I think the, uh, the, search, the search engine as we know it today in the future goes the way of the cassette tape where you know, people aren't gonna be like typing in and looking at 10,000 responses and trying to find what they want. That's not, that's not where, where, where the puck's going. So I think knowing where the puck's going and getting ahead of it is, is critical. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business, and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Let's talk about the Timberwolves. Um, Okay. How did you, uh, you know, before we jump in like around kind of post Walmart, I'm just curious, like, how do you buy an NBA team? Um, Like, who do you call to even get started? Yeah, so basically um, someone said, hey, would you be interested to me and A-Rod, like, would you be interested in meeting the owner of this team? And we had uh, had a failed attempt at buying the New York Mets baseball team. We were kind of down. And then then we said, all right probably smart, you know, I'm sure something else, this was, there's a reason why this didn't work out. 
And we got this call and, and we both thought, huh, basketball. Yeah, basketball is actually a, 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 a cooler sport. It's got more upside. It's global. It's diverse. It's forward. It's like all these things. And we love the action. We're both big sports fans. Um, and we're like, yeah, let's be with the owner, but not necessarily like, well, we, we know we want to buy this team. It was just sort of, let's just meet. Seven days later, we bought it. Um, so it was sort of happened really fast. Um, we had a great discussion with Glenn Taylor and Becky, the owners, and uh, just got really fired up and thought this could be so fun. And he had presented and said, you know, this is what I'm looking for. And he had explained that lots of suitors tried to buy the team and, and they all, you know, were pushing to negotiate and, and uh, wanted this and wanted that. And he's like, I'm sort of like simple guy. Uh, this is what I'm looking for. Are you guys interested? And I always tell people, you know, the, you know, if you want to be a great negotiator, you have to know when not to negotiate. And this was one of those times. Alex and I looked at each other and we're like, um, what do you think about what he's asking? And we're both like, seems fair. It's full price. It seems fair. You want this? I said, yeah. You want this? Yeah. So we want this. It's a fair deal. Let's just tell him, like, we'll do it as is. That All your terms. We'll accept them just as is. And, uh, and we did. And he said, well, I guess you're not giving me a reason not to do this deal. And we said, yeah, that's the point. We, we want to do the deal. We don't want to give you any reasons. And he, so he, we shook hands, and that was the deal. It would literally happen in a matter of days. Um, so it's a great lesson for me, uh, and, and I guess to share to others too. It's just sometimes you just, if you really want something and you think it's fair, don't negotiate. Yeah, I love that. So you've been pretty busy post Walmart. Um, so can you tell us more about Wanda and uh, you know what, what, what's the long-term vision there? Yeah, so it's great. So Wonder. That's my new startup. Uh, I'm the chairman and CEO of sort of the Wonder Group. Um, there's a few different pieces under there. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're basically creating um, next-gen chain of restaurants. Um, so uh, we've created 17 and counting restaurant chains that are built on a mobile uh, platform. So rather than having to sort of find real estate and build a brick-and-mortar restaurant, we actually built a restaurant inside of a mobile, inside of a mobile Mercedes Sprinter van. And this van will come up in front of your house, cook the food and deliver it piping hot to your door. So we, when I say 17 restaurant chains, meaning that we've got everything from Bobby Flay steak um, to Sushi Nakazawa, to the uh, Farrah pizza, to Fred's burgers and everything in between. Um, we've, we've acquired the IP and we've built these restaurants from scratch. They're vertically integrated. We source the food, cook the food in a big central commissary, load up the trucks. The trucks go out for the night and they basically just drive around and you just pull up your app and see, oh, DeFaro Pizza is eight minutes away. You click on it. Eight minutes later, pulls up. It, it cooks the pizza in a high-speed convection oven uh, with, with lightly trained uh, uh, people on the, on the truck. Um, and the food quality is incredible. Um, and we're, we're live in New Jersey in about, uh, I guess we're 10 towns now. And it's blowing the doors off. Customers absolutely love it. Um, the, the, the orders, the, the, the net promoter scores, everything's going, going incredible. And um, 
we're excited to, to sort of take this, take this across the country um, in the coming years here. Yeah, fascinating. And how did you come up with this idea? You know, I would uh, started ordering a lot from, from sort of DoorDash and Uber Eats and stuff, living in New York City, and just was not, didn't find the experience compelling. You know, it was just cold, couldn't get a lot of, you know, high quality food, hot, couldn't really order fish or French fries or, you know, couldn't get high quality meals. The service was unpredictable, it was long, expensive. And um, I was thinking about that on one side and then also simultaneously thinking about what Amazon had done to, to uh, brick and mortar retail and that they built this tech platform that cut across all the different retail verticals and created a $1.5 trillion market cap company. And I thought, you know, restaurant chains have been around a long time, the brick and mortar nature of it. Is there a way to create a platform that can cut across all the brick and mortar restaurant chains in a way that, that took a lot of the risk of that CapEx investment off the table and allowed you to scale fast across all the cuisines? And so that's what we built. We built a, a basically a, a next-gen chain of restaurants off this mobile platform that allows the CapEx investment to be variable. Like we don't have to find real estate and build a building. You know, we basically see what the demand is in a region and we put that many trucks in there to satisfy the demand. Um, if there's less demand, we put less trucks, more demand, more trucks. It's, it's a variable um, CapEx investment, which allows you to capture a lot of demand that physical brick and mortar restaurants can't capture because they have such a fixed nut. You know, it's going to cost me $4 million to build or a Bobby Flay Steakhouse. You need a certain level of demand. We can put a tenth of a Bobby Flay Steak restaurant into an area and do a tenth of demand and make it and do it profitably. So that was sort of the, the big aha. It was like, it was like we, can, we can, you know, outdo what's being done on, on food delivery with a whole new concept of bringing sort of the restaurant chains that exist, brick and mortar chains, to you on a mobile platform. That was, that was how it came to be. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you for taking us through that process, thought process. So um, recently as well, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, she's become an investor, joined the board. Um, I'm curious, like, uh, uh, how, how, why, why is uh, she a great fit for the team? Oh, I've known her for a while, and she's an incredible human being, first and foremost, very uh, aligned with her values, um, and that's really important. She has a, a, a passion for sustainability, uh, food sustainability, um, and, you know, is really pushing uh, uh, us on, on diversity and, and uh, really empowering women, which is, is super important to me as well. She adds a really diverse uh, viewpoint uh, on the board of directors and has been invaluable so far. And, and, you know, I know she will continue to add incredible value going forward. She also is a foodie, loves food. Um, and, uh, and, and is really into sort of health and wellness too, which is something that wonder that we're really hoping to do is we think because of the variable nature of the CapEx again, we can go into areas and give people access to wholesome food, nutritious food that maybe is not available because there's not enough demand to put one of those, you know, healthy restaurants in that area. And so we do think we could make a big impact on, on the health of Americans. Um, we pay very good solid wages, $20 an hour or more with health benefits. Um, we're, we're moving to a fully electric, uh, sustainable uh, mobile platform in the, in, in the coming uh, months. So yeah, it's just 
there's, there's a lot more to it than just than just you know building a profitable business. Yeah, amazing. And I'm curious, like, what's next? Uh, what does 2022 look like for the company? For for Wonder itself. Yeah. Well, what's exciting yeah, we're, we're to take the next right scale? Now, and we're focused on continuing to to add more uh, restaurants to this mobile platform and build. Um, you know, can continue to drive penetration and, and, and rep, top line revenue and get profitable. Um, we, we think the margins in this business are great and we're going to be profitable in the very near future, um, doing a lot of revenue in a very small area. So that, that bodes well for expansion after that. So once we solidify that, then we'll, we'll start to aggressive, aggressively expand. Yeah, awesome. Um, love to switch gears just quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about Tolosa? and your project there, and for anyone that might not know what that is and what you're doing there and why? Uh, so Tolosa, wow, we're really switching gears. we got Timberwolves, Wonder. <laughs> you're doing uh, a lot. We've got, to, we've got to get through it. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, we got to get through it all. Okay. Well, so again, I could talk for hours about Tolosa too, but the um, uh, mission of Tolosa, Tolosa is the name of the city that we're going to build of 5 million people. Um, uh, likely in the in the desert, um, it, the, the the sort of idea came from not wanting to build a city. It was really trying to test a new model for society, one that's more equitable and sustainable. So on, on the uh, equitable piece, um, you know, I like many Americans have just been really you know concerned about the divide happening in America, um, and. You know, I, I fundamentally believe capitalism is an incredible economic model, but like any model, it has flaws. And, you know, we, we know that, you know, 100 years ago, um, you know, monopolies were, were not protected. The government didn't protect against monopolies. And, and you know, um, employees suffered big time. And then the government said, wait, you know, capitalism is a great model. But we, we can't have monopolies. We need to have competition. So we're going to have antitrust laws to protect, to make sure that there's competition. And that was a, a, a big move forward for capitalism and it made it a much stronger model. I think there's still another, another gear left um, or another a void to, to sort of fill. And, and that is land ownership. And so, you know, landowners, there's a finite amount of land. People um, got access to land way back when, put a stake in the ground and said, hey, this is my land. And you really don't need to do anything. You sort of have a little bit of a, a monopoly on that land. As people and communities move, move into that land, it increases the value. As tax dollars are spent on infrastructure, it increases the value. You didn't have to do anything as a landowner. You literally could just sit back. That's not really at the heart of capitalism. Capitalism is about you know, taking risk, applying capital, and wait and, and, and labor to sort of build something and create value. So we thought, what if the model was slightly different? What, what if the land were owned in the beginning um, by a community foundation? And, and this is the intent here. We're going to buy 200,000 acres of land through a community foundation. We're going to build a city of 5 million people. The land, the day that 5 million people are living there, the land will go from a worthless desert to be worth an, an incredible amount of money. That land will then be sold off by the foundation to create a, 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 a city wealth fund, if you will, or an endowment, and will use the proceeds of that endowment to invest in the most advanced social services 
education, medical care, jobs training, affordable housing. And if we do it right, when we pencil out the numbers, we'll have about $50 billion a year to invest in these services in this city of 5 million people, which would give the city some of the most advanced social services anywhere in the world without having to increase taxes to pay for it. We know the social democratic countries in Scandinavia, they've got, you know, they've got cr crazy social services, but they also have crazy high tax rates. This is sort of the best of both worlds, and that's sort of the model we're testing. Can we have both? Can we have great social services and create a more equitable base or foundation for people without having to, to make people you know, pay more taxes? And we think we can. That's the model we're testing on the equitable side. And then while we're doing building the city from scratch, we're also going to make it the most sustainable city in the world with 100% renewable energy and zero waste. And I can, again, I, I, I'm sure we have limited time here, but but that's sort of that's sort of Tolosa in a nutshell. It's uh, the mission is to create a more equitable, sustainable future, and that's that's what we're we're driving toward. Yeah, this is fascinating. Like you, you're the first guest, first person I've ever spoke to that's uh, creating our own city. I'm curious, uh, like what's been the f like biggest unexpected challenge there? I mean, there's so many challenges that we'll run into in the future. Now we're sort of in that a little bit of that honeymoon period where we're you know, going through the exercise of, of architecting the city, uh, thinking about, you know, how do we put people at the center and what are our values and what's the vision for it? And we've got great architectural designs and like, it's sort of, you know, we haven't really bumped up into the real challenges about, you know, how do you get water in the desert for 5 million people? And, you know, can you do 100% renewable energy? Is it all solar? Where are the panels going to be? Like, we're thinking through these problems but we haven't actually bumped into it. In, in, in real life yet, because we're still in the planning phase. So we're sort of in that, in that honeymoon period, I'll say right now, but I know it's coming and we're trying to prepare for it. But just like any big audacious startup or, or goal, um, you gotta be prepared for some really, you know, rough waters in the future. And we're, we are, we're, we're ready for it. Mm. Um, we're working towards wrapping up. What excites you the most? You've got a lot going on, Mark. It's fascinating. Uh, what excites you the most for the future? I'm really excited about, you know, this is a long-term decade project, but Tolosa and really, really um, putting like an incredible amount of, 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 you know, putting like the brightest minds in the world that we're starting to attract into, into sort of the Tolosa project, Getting, seeing what the brightest minds in the world coming together can do to improve the quality of life for future generations. Like, I think that's really exciting. That really excites me, you know? Um, and cause it's not just me. It's not the team we have. Like we're just one small piece. We're, we're literally bringing some of the smartest, most influential people in the world as part of this project and just excited to see, like all the innovation and all the, the, the great new thinking that comes out of it. Because like, when you think about all the things that go into a functioning city um, and, and all the things that go into improving the quality of life for people, you know, it, it cuts across everything that we know. It's, it's, you know, when you start talking about education and medical care and security and, and, you know, um, parks and, and restaurants and like, all the things that, you know, all of the ways in which we live, like if we can elevate that and do it in a more equitable and sustainable way, that really sets us up 
for a really bright future. And I am, I am very optimistic about the future um, and, uh, you know, excited to, to do my part. Yeah, incredible. Thank you for sharing. So, look, uh, work towards wrapping up. We'll go a few rapid-fire questions. We've got four for you, just 30-second, uh, 60-second okay. answers, um, and then we'll wrap. So uh, the first one is, when is work fun? Work is, work is fun when you're surrounded with people that share your values, who you respect, um, enjoy spending time with, uh, all working toward a common, uh, all, all with a common mission that's bigger than just dollars and cents that you really think are bigger, bigger than, bigger than you that where you feel like you can really make an impact. So it's a combination of, of wanting and, and, and being able to feel like you can make an impact, but also doing it with people that you respect and can learn from and grow with. That's what I would say. What's been the most unexpected perk of owning an NBA team? I mean, you know, as a big sports fan, you know, the, it's like maybe it's not considered a perk, but being able to sort of um, pick up the phone and, and talk to the GM um, or go in the locker room and, you know, talk to the players. Like, you know, that's sort of the dream of a very kid. And it was certainly me growing up 10 years old thinking about once I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, I quickly said, that's okay. Maybe one day I can own a team, you know, and uh, that's sort of the, the fun part of it. Yeah. Um, you're an incredibly successful person. You have so many things going on. How do you know where to allocate your time around like ideas and what to do next? Yeah, it's, that's really hard. Um, first thing I do is I outsource every possible thing I can that is not like one of, you know, one of some of the things that we just talked about, you know? So like, I, I do feel like I've got a lot of uh, time to focus on, on these different things um, because I, I literally outsource everything. Um, and I also think that I spend a lot of time thinking um, maybe others are reading or watching TV, I think. And sometimes just spending like time each day, like an hour to just think about what's most important for the following day, the following month, the following year. Like what are the most important things? I spend a lot of time thinking about that and it helps you know, me prioritize my day and my, my month and my year, even my decade. You know, when you start thinking about things like, like Telosa and, and uh, so... Awesome. Um, last question, and then we'll wrap. Um, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I mean, I've, oh, I've gotten this question before, and the, my knee jerk was always Ben Franklin. Um, you know, I don't know if you call him a classic entrepreneur, but he certainly was, you know, and he had his hands in lots of things. So the other person I would say is Walt Disney. I'm just fascinated just, you know, um, because he had that vision for a city of the future. And I'd love to, would love to have the opportunity to, 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 you know, hear what he was thinking and what his vision was. That would be really fun. There's so many. I, could, I mean, I literally want to do it with everyone. But those, those two pop in my head first. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, look, Mark, won't take any more of your time. Thank you so much. This was a really, really Thank insightful you, interview. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. I enjoyed it. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. 
As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.